Welcome to the Seeking Stories podcast, where we unlock stories so that you can master their secrets and change the world through your writing. Uh, this week, we're talking about Fahrenheit 451, and me and Kristen are here with our really good friends, David and Madison, who live all the way across the country in Alaska. Mm-hmm. So there is a four-hour time difference right now. Um, David has been my oldest and closest friend since before I can remember, and many of the things I know about storytelling and writing, I've learned from him. And it's an honor to have both of them featured this week as we talk about a book that has been, um, I guess, quite popular for the last, I guess, 60 years and um, has remained that case even into uh, the 2000s, 2010, rather. So um, does anyone, the other three of us, want to give a a quick recap on the book Um, or a summary? (laughs) Well, uh, for I remember it started with him obsessively burning books. <laughs> so that was the first thing that, that we both remembered from, from the story. And then it kind of kicked off from there. Uh, I remember things happened pretty quickly. Um, he meets uh, Clarissa um, and, and, and she kind of instigates um, some, of, some of his further deeper wanderings into the world of book loving book thieving what have you so yeah. <laughs> it's where it yeah, starts that's pretty I, that's pretty much one of the first things that happened I, you know i've realized i'm probably the person who read this most recently yeah. <laughs> but you finished so, it like last week i think yeah so yeah he yeah it's like he leaves work all like hyped up on how great it is to burn stuff and meets meets her and is thrown off gets home finds that his wife has overdosed mm-hmm. on sleeping pills that happens and then, yeah, things kind of go on. He keeps he keeps seeing Clarice and talks to her. And then she disappears. And then I think one of the biggest turning points for him, because um, like you mentioned, David, um, Clarice has been putting like kind of like planting the seeds, I guess, mm-hmm. in his head. Mm-hmm. And then they go out to this they go out to this call this woman's house, and they're supposed to burn the books in the house, and she won't leave. She actually does. She end up starting the fire. I think she. I think ends she up, starts the fire. I think she starts the fire and like saves herself. Yeah. And he's freaked out by the fact that this woman, like, just her behavior and the fact that she kind of just died with her books, whatever. Made a very strong state. Yes, and he ends up stealing a book from there, taking it home, and eventually you find out that he's got a whole collection of books hidden in the house that he shows to his wife, and then yeah, it's this kind of. Uh, everything starts to pick up. He he gets um, eventually caught, uh, called on, or he's he gets turned in by a neighbor, um, and his chief kind of tricks him into responding to the call himself. And he's like, makes him you get to burn your house, and his wife is left. He ends up killing his chief. Yeah. Oh yeah, he burns him. And his chief afterwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the robot dog. Yeah, he kills that mechanical dog that tries to kill him, and then of course the man starts. So he appears, floats down the river, meets a bunch of um, what we would consider homeless people, but they're people. They're they're um, they're they're intellectual they're, freedom yes, fighters. Yes, yes, the intellectual freedom fighters who have all memorized the books, and he joins them, and and the city gets destroyed, and it's like I guess this kind of idea that things are about to turn because life is not going to be the same like they see a but like a huge bomb destroys the city like at the end of the book 
So I also left out his friend Faber, the one, the guy with the books. Oh yeah, the other book Perfect. guy who helps him. I don't know if it was poetry or what, but yeah. it was. He was a professor, and he is also a little bit of an inventor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he invents that thing that you kind of hear, like you telepathically. No, it's just it's like an earpiece. But like the the kid, the earpiece. He can hear. Can he hear Montag's thoughts? No, it's not thoughts. It's like it's like so I can talk to you and I can hear what's going mm-hmm. on like around you. It's okay. like an earpiece. Yeah, like, it's like what they use in all the. It was it was, was high tech in the fifties. <laughs> yeah, it was James yeah. Bond stuff, man. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 So that's the story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <It's a summary. laughs> okay, I think we're done now. No. <laughs> no. Spark notes. <laughs> yeah, so, I, I th- thing that we kind of thought was interesting and a little uh, maybe confusing, but is that at first you are led to believe that he, especially at the very start, you're led to believe that he's he loves burning books, he hates books. Uh, the opening imagery is very passionate about that. Um, but then later on, you find out that this isn't his first book that he's stolen. Um, this isn't his first act. He's kind of got a stash at his house, which um, I'm not quite sure what Bradbury is going for with that contradiction, but it, it certainly um, certainly unveils itself fairly early in the story, which is, is kind of interesting. It's pretty good characteristic moments. You know, so just, you know, Ray Bradbury telling us, you know, oh, this is what he's like. It gives us those moments like... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the Right at the beginning, um, he says that he, he um, and the pockets walked across the floor and fell down the hole. At the last moment, the disaster is positive. He pulled us from his which is really cool that Brayberry used characterization moments rather than just saying like, oh, he he just had a normal day. Yeah. Yeah. What were you quoting from? Oh, <laughs> it was uh, all jarbled on our end. I'm sorry. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> um, it was on, I don't know guys, if you guys have the book, but it's on page 34 when he's... Well, of our version. Of our version, yeah. When he's talking about how... Um, it's only like on. It's only like one page in to the whole story. It's when he he jumps. He kind of falls down the the, the fire station pole, and instead of like grabbing it, sliding out, he just kind of like falls and then grabs it before he like oh, cracks yeah. it. Oh yeah, yeah, hmm. a little bit reckless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reckless. But it's cool because it kind of shows that he does this so much, so like mm-hmm. that he just becomes like a game to him almost. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can see that further developed in his kind of emotional breakdown um, when Mildred, his wife, has all the. The, the visitors over and he just <laughs> melts down and goes crazy on him. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a different yeah. circumstance, but still yeah. same reckless behavior. Faber is definitely upset with him <laughs> after that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's like, we haven't even been doing this plan for an hour and you're ready. I think that's one of the things I was the most surprised by is that I feel like the guy Montag, is that his last name? He, uh, yeah. Like, at the beginning, he didn't have a lot of agency. He wasn't really making choices on his own. And then even when he was, it was like his hand, his mind didn't know what his hands were doing when he was stealing the books. Mm-hmm. But then once he finally starts making decisions, he goes insane. 
he yeah. he makes really ridiculous, insane decisions yeah. that you know that there has to be a way to do this without without dying, and he did not master it. Yeah, he like can't he can't keep control of like his impulse. His yeah, impulse, like goes with his. He's very passion. He yeah, gets, he gets overcome by passion. Yeah, from the very beginning, it's really interesting. Yeah. Mm hmm. Which is is so interesting to kind of look at that in comparison to his wife, who is also can be considered somewhat of a passionate creature, but in a very different kind of lethargic way. Like, yeah. Much about her, like her parlor room, and and having that that mindset, but it's a very lazy type of passion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mildred is kind of representative of that civilization as a whole, I think. This kind of empty shell of a person that is ensconced or completely um, enthralled with um, media consumerism, um, which is kind of a, the central theme of his book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That sounds Someone, I was actually reading a review of this book on Goodreads, and someone said, I didn't look into the sources to check them, but but supposedly in interviews, he said that this was, like, about TV. Yeah. Yeah. He said, yeah. Kind of all against television. It wasn't about the government trying to control. It wasn't about censorship. It was about the television and our reliance on technology and how fast it makes us. Yeah, that was one thing that really did intrigue me about the book, um, because at first, when I first started reading it, I knew the premise that about books being illegal, like that's all I knew, and that they, they burned books. And to and I, I guess you know going in with my own assumptions based on a lot of other dystopian literature I've either read or known about, you know, it was that assumption, yeah, that it, like the government was like a, it was that type of government. They put the censorship on people, whatever. Um, but so I was really um, intrigued to learn later that it's because that really it's because um, people just stopped wanting books. It was like the people like got so into television, people got annoyed. You know, I think I think I think Faber is the one that tells them kind mm-hmm. of explains really is what happening. Um, and it's like books. People got annoyed, started getting frustrated with books because it showed them that they weren't all the same, and that yeah. were there were like things were better. Some people were better than other people. Yeah. It's like we're not we're not all on equal footing as far as as abilities or skill, you know that kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. he. So I was like, really, we don't even need the firemen. It's the people that gave up the books. Yeah, yeah. which I think yeah. that was. The brilliant things about Ray Bradbury is and it kind of shows his skill as an author because I feel like in, a, in the hands of a, a lesser author, he would have made it all about government conspiracies. Mm-hmm. But he yeah. kind of took the more natural route. We just, we just did this to ourselves. Yeah, and it was yeah. the government had to go along with it because, well, everyone's happier when the books aren't here, so let's just, you know, it's like the government only did what they thought they needed to do to keep the people happy. Yeah. And, yeah. and most of them are. They're They're clueless. Like, that. you know, his wife, she's like, why in the world would I want to read a book? It's not yeah. yeah, and she's yeah. she gets afraid every time he starts to quote books. She gets afraid and confused. Uh, she thinks they're pointless, and um, yeah. it's a very intimidating thing for her whenever he starts yeah. to read. Yeah, well, and then yeah. that the the scene where she has those has friends over, and uh, he ends up reading that poem. And yeah. 
crying. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and yeah. it's, like, it's like, I don't know, like to me, like I love it that that literature or even just art in general, like can, you know, can move you. And to yeah. them, it was like, it was like, how dare you? You made her cry. And like, that's an awful, it was like this horrible thing. It was frightening to her. Yeah, it was right. Not to that woman, to the, well, to the other two women. She mm-hmm. didn't really say, I don't remember her saying much. But her friends, like his wife and the other lady, were like, this is yeah. so awful. This is why books are terrible. They make you cry. And it's like, well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, that's, that's why they're beautiful, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, well, the thing is, like, well, you have to think about why did it make her cry? And it's probably because it was something that filled, it probably touched on something that had been missing or that yeah. had, it maybe spoke to some way that she was living her life that wasn't satisfying. I don't know. It's like, yeah. It's, it, yeah, and you can see it definitely through Mildred and that woman, as you were saying, um, like Mildred tries to commit suicide because you would think that she'd be happy and just immersed in this this media. She has everything she wants right around her, yet there's an emptiness inside her. Yeah, um, well, and that, yeah, and that scene when he calls the for the, you know, the emergency response and it's these guys and he's yeah. all how kind of, um, nonchalant, but yeah, nonchalant and almost like non, um, I want to say non-professional in the sense that these didn't seem like the, your average, like EMT people. And the yeah. guys are like, like, we get these calls so often. They just created this job for people. Like you don't necessarily need to be trained as a doctor or whatever. It's like, it's almost like they're just mechanics and it, because they get so many calls for people overdosing. It's like, yeah, we've got another one to go to in an hour or, or not an hour, like in, you know, in a couple minutes. So it's like, I guess this is one of those side effects of the society is people get so, hope, I don't know, hopeless, whatever, whatever it is that drives them to do it. I think they, um, they might even feel dead to themselves, hopeless yeah. and, and numb from, yeah. from what they end up watching and, the, and that the fact that that's their whole focus that's their whole that's their family and it's these uh this nonsense on the walls in their home yeah mm-hmm. yeah the other thing that it struck me was that it could be because it seemed like she like her character specifically had trouble sleeping like even just getting asleep because it was like she yeah. constantly was wearing little Shell earbud things. things that were like talk, yeah. like oh like, yeah singing to sounds or the ocean whatever and it was like and it was like all this and, and I don't know if it ever really described her sleeping Mm-mm. I don't know I don't remember ever describing her actually being asleep but like I don't know maybe that could be another thing it's like if you want to sleep you know you just <laughs> take all the pills and maybe I'll fall asleep I don't know that could be another yeah thing. I think at one point he describes her bradbury describes her as a, a corpse that has no rest <laughs> her, oh yeah 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 mm-hmm. so what, what do you think um some kind of good or not good storytelling elements were that ray bear or ray bradbury used in the whether it's language or characterization or anything like that so one of my favorite parts of the book was um, how he characterized Beatty. Um, one thing I noticed is he, um, I think Beatty in some sense is supposed to be representative of the devil, um, in part because of the language he's used around it. I think he's always wielding this like eternal matchbox, um, so this eternal flame 
and he's smoking a brass pipe and it's, it's just a very fiery image around BD. Um, and he, and also the sense that Madison pointed that this out to earlier and I didn't pick up on it. Um, when I was reading it, but I, it's definitely true. Like, like he's read the books, he knows oh, yes. the books just like, like Satan or the devil would know what have, mm-hmm. have be acquainted with the word of God and, and what is right. But he still chooses to do, to go against books, to go against, um, what we consider right action. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I thought that was cool characterization that Bradbury used, um, uh, as kind of the nemesis in the story. Well, not even, not even does he, does, is it just that he knows the books, like he's read the books, but he misuses them. He uses, he uses the content, some of the content that he knows, he cherry picks stuff from yeah. books to, to persuade Montag why they, sh- why it's ironic that why we um, don't want them like why they're bad yeah well, it's ironic that he's the most well-read character of the entire yes <laughs> yeah yes definitely yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe yeah like the professors maybe yeah. but yeah. but but bd like he he's got it memorized like yeah. even though he applies it incorrectly yeah like mm-hmm. he, he doesn't even need to look it up he'd be like oh on page two or whatever he's like yeah. oh i just i just know all this yeah and yeah. david i i didn't even think about you know bd be kind of representative of the devil but that even makes sense from like the whole salamander perspective because mm-hmm. um, and I, I don't know the, the quite the mythology behind it but i remember from one of our old favorite books the silver chair um when the little underground people would go into like the the super underground part bism i think and they talk about there being like oh. salamanders and basically like hell kind of okay oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Is, if salamanders are kind of indicative of something in mythology I, did, I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, I, I guess we're all putting more of the pieces of the puzzle together to get see how, I guess, strongly yeah. that image actually is. I just I just noticed that when he's talked about, I think, his, like, his red face and his brass pipe, and there's just like, it's almost like smoke's coming out of his ears. I, he yeah, doesn't say I, that. <laughs> it's like, uh, I was just yeah, thinking, this guy's the devil. <laughs> I feel like sometimes his eyes might even glow orange or, like, yeah. evil. Yeah, he's so, so dark. Yeah. I never thought about that. Yeah. I mean, I know yeah. that it probably doesn't, but I I visualize that sometimes, almost like that character, the the Satan character in Oh Brother Where Art Thou, like his his oh, he yeah. glasses and then the flame sort of reflect in his. Thumb. Oh, That's sort yeah. of how I pictured Beatty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. So it's funny. So sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying. Yeah, that's that was one thing that I liked about Bradbury's storytelling. <laughs> mm. I liked how he included, um, I loved every time that one of the characters ends up quoting a book because it caught, you know, I would take that quote and figure out where it came from and how, figure out what it could mean in the context of the story. And I just, I really enjoyed that element of it. Um, I loved the characterization, but I think uh, the, the quotes from the, all of the different stories that he uses is what entertained me the most as I was reading it. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, and it's cool. I don't know if it, um, the version you guys read had any introductions to it. The one we got from the library had three different introductions, which took like 50 pages of the, of the book. Wow. <laughs> like, original introduction, his one from the 1990s, and like a 2003 introduction he did. And he kind of says the same thing across all of them, to an extent. All from Bradbury? Yeah, all he- from Bradbury. He's got like a foreword and a couple of introductions. Oh, wow. Um, but he talks about writing the book, um, and he said that he's, he basically did it in two different chunks. He wrote like a short story 
Um, and then later on, a publisher said, I want to make this into a book, but it's too short. So we basically went back and doubled the length. Um, and really both times, he said it only took him nine days to do it. He just said, sat down there in the basement of, I think it was some down California, maybe Stanford or something like that. And I think it was like a dime for every an hour of writing using the typewriter. He would just go at it, like almost like stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of like you were saying, Madison, he would just pick out, he would run up to the library. He'd open up books until he found a cool bit and then go and insert it into the story. And then so quote that. Yeah, and he didn't, so it's, he kind of implied that he didn't even know what half of these stories were about. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Not quite as intentional as I would have imagined, Ray Bradbury. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's crazy because he was only, I think, 33 when the book was published, and he had done the early short story version, I think, in his late 20s. Oh, wow. So, so there's a lot of gap in between. Yeah. But he was, I mean, I guess pretty young to write a book that has, I guess, transcended a couple of generations and is arguably, I think, even more applicable today in a way. Just Oh, yeah. When I got done, I, I was I just kind of was thinking about and reflecting on the book. And it's it. And I thought, you know, it's almost as if he wrote this as a warning to future culture. And instead of taking it as a warning, culture took it as a handbook of what to become <laughs> um, yeah. it, yeah, it, it, we are v- even more immersed in um just uh empty media commercialism than we were in the 60s it was still prevalent obviously then that's right but yeah he imagined it is oh when i go home and i'm surrounded by all this but i don't even think he could have imagined nowadays where it's just phones everywhere and advertisements everywhere and you just can't escape it and yeah you know, David, it's it's even worse nowadays. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah, and it, although if you think about it, the a lot of a lot of what's worse isn't necessarily just the prevalence of the flashy like screens and the and the you know cell phones and everything, but also the content. Because even books, like you know, books are still being published by the hundreds, but it's like. I saw when I was reading a chain of comments on Goodreads, there were some people de- kind of debating about this singular notion that oh, TV is bad and books are good. But you also have to take into account the content that you're yeah. because you can read books that are horrible in their content or trashy or you know whatever. And if that's all you read, you know it's like well, that's still not much better than just yeah. watching yeah. television. I mean, you know, it's so it's like you gotta, you know, you kind of have to consider some of the other elements that it's like if you if you pull, boil it down to books are, are bad, good and TV is bad, it's like well you're kind of missing some extra information there. I I, I mean, yeah, I think. definitely. I think that while I was reading it, one of the things I was almost a little depressed because I felt like at the beginning um, it was almost like Ray Bradbury is saying this book, uh, a book in its physical form, is what's important. And, and I felt uh, like that that can't possibly be true, sort of because of what you're saying, because some books are crap. And, and in the end, it's just a, it's just a piece, a bunch of pieces of paper. But yeah. then when Guy actually meets Faber and they have that conversation, it's like, well, no, it's not the book in and of itself. It's this, these other aspects of our culture that have been stolen from us, and then we can't even use the information that we get in the books. We don't, 
we're not allowed to allow our minds to expand and grow and, and think critically like they could if we are using this good literature, quality literature. Yeah, it's the idea of information, of danger, of conversation. Because even um, Clarice and her family, you know, they don't, we don't get any indication that they have books. But just the fact that they sit down as a family and talk to each other, yeah. everyone else is so weird. Or the fact that she doesn't want to, like, all of the all of the activities that seem to be prevalent in the society, it's like watching, you know, your big TV wall <laughs> in your parlor, or, like, driving at insanely high speeds that oh, no one yeah. drives at these days. Oh, yeah. Like, it's almost take the, take the need for instant gratification and multiply it by 100, and that's what these characters need. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what everything in society is going for. And just so it's not just the fact, it's not just about, oh, there's no books, but the fact that no one wants to sit down and, like, think. Mm -hmm. No one yep. wants to sit down and have a conversation with someone. Or, like, even, you know, like, um, the one of the scenes that I kind of found a little depressing was they were talking about kids. Like, even kids aren't valued. Like, the one lady is talking about, like, how, like, it's like, I only have to see my kids, like, three days out of every month or something. Yeah. It's like. You know, and it's like she doesn't like them. You know, yeah. it's like the only reason to have like one lady is like argues even against having kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just so many things are not valued. Which you're hearing yeah. more and more of in our well, home society. I feel like I maybe remember exactly, but in that conversation, don't don't they discuss abortion almost? Yeah, um, which I thought yeah. was really interesting for the time period that Bradbury was writing about. Uh, yeah. Or, or in the time period in which he lived, I thought it was interesting that he tackled that in this book and his perspective on it. Um, uh, so one of the pulls out one of the ladies, one of um, his wife's friends on, I think, having a couple abortions and almost like yeah. not even thinking anything of it. Yeah, yeah. it's well, he's go to leave, and he's he's of course he's still on the swells of passion of all his yeah. angst. But yeah, go home and think about all those abortions you had and yeah. your C-sections and he oh, yeah, he yeah. he, he yeah, has which this is odd. He yeah. he has this odd rant that he <laughs> like, okay. I thought but, it was interesting that he included those things like abortion and C-section as if they're as if they're morally similar in any way um and i guess i can i have seen like in media and things like that people bashing women who like schedule their c-sections ahead of time because it would be convenient to make sure that you have your baby on this day or something at this time and i thought that was interesting i'm wondering if maybe that's what he's getting at just the convenience factor which would sort of play into everything else that we think that yeah. he's talking about when it comes to the tv but I, that whole scene i'm just like you're you're crazy man <laughs> Yeah. But it brings up a lot of good points. Yeah. 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 Here, okay, this is the one lady that does have kids. She describes she describes having kids as it's like washing clothes, stuff laundry in and slam a lid. Like when she comes home, she stuffs them in the room with the TV and turns it on and that's it. Yeah. That's her parent. Yeah. I almost imagine it as like a little bit of fear too, like you didn't need to get them all in there. Get them all in there quickly. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I guess the the thing for me about the the whole of the books, it it, it kind of hit me at the very end when he's talking to um, the, the the group of the homeless people, and he basically they basically tell him that you know we don't have the physical copies of books anymore because we all just memorize it and everything. And part of me was just like, no, no, you have to have the hard copies of books. But that yeah. was exactly his point. Is like, you know, it's not the actual 
physical yeah. nature of it. It's it's what yeah. those words say. And then that, and that was, I think, challenging to me as a reader because I think all four of us are like this. We, we love our books. We love them in the bookcase. And mm-hmm. the older and more leather-bound, the better, I think. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm still not sure I can accept that uh, moral truth that he's trying to impart <laughs> on us. But, um, <laughs> yeah. um, but the one interesting thing that kind of my little gripe on that, too, is that um, I guess, you know, when you do memorize, you are introducing, you know, flaws in the system. Human error. It's yeah. a whole, you know, uh, verbal storytelling from one culture to another mm-hmm. um, and how that, that changes. And maybe that's what he's going for, for. Maybe he was thinking that, oh, because we're all intellectuals and we're, you know, things will, you know, books will change with, you know, time. Maybe that's a good thing, which I don't know if that's a good thing, but yeah. I don't know if that's just kind of something he overlooked. It's not a good thing. I agree with you, Ryan. I didn't really like that they weren't keeping the the um, the hard copies of the books. And I think that while I obviously see the value in the thought process that the books prompt in you, I feel like you know Shakespeare isn't Shakespeare if you don't get his word for word the beauty in the language that he uses. Yeah. Um, and. And what if a guy who is memorizing, you know, Taming of the Shrew gets the insults wrong? Then it's not as fun anymore. It's not as funny. It's not as Shakespeare-y. Um, so. I think what bothers me on a logistical standpoint is they have the resources to copy these things down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Not, you know, yeah. That's a minor point. <laughs> Out in the woods, no one's out looking for them. They could just bury a whole bunch in a, in a steel box and yeah. But well, then, then matter anyway, the whole place burns down. Yeah. Well, and the the lead guy did say it's like, well, we try like microfilm or something, but we have to keep burying it and then finding it again and bringing it around. It was like the idea. I think the idea for them was <clears throat> that was that to not have anything incriminating on them no. was best, and so they wouldn't have to lug stuff around. So it's like I guess. My hope would be is that 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 is how as a as a kind of gypsy type group that they are, that that's how they have to operate. But my hope would be that there are other people like them who do have the printed copies of everything. Like, I, I just think there's too many flaws in the system. What if the guy like falls and bumps his head on the railroad tracks and you know, there, there goes Huck Finn? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's that's actually one of the biggest reasons why I didn't give the book five stars because there were too many flaws at the end. <laughs> yeah. 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 Were there? I, I mean, I don't necessarily want to. What were some of the other flaws that you were thinking of? Is that the biggest one, or were there other ones that caught your attention? There were two. That was the biggest one, um, and then the second one. And this is a very much a subjective thing for me. Um, but I, I wish the book was double the length and the, it would, the characters were a bit more complex. Like, and I understand what he was going for, that, you know, Montag was representative of the people who were kind of trying to investigate things. Um, BD was, you know, the devil. Um, but it would have been nice to learn more about Faber and his wife, um, just because they were very simple characters. And, that, and especially for the wife, I feel like that was kind of the point, to show the simplicity of society. Um, but I feel like there was almost something, something more there, in a way. Um, and I, I like long books. Yeah. You know, kind of my fault. But. I actually um, surprised myself when I finished the book. I, I was anticipating a few more chapters because at the end of the copy that we read, there's probably another hundred pages of question and answer or notes. or And, and wow. so I thought that was actually storytelling. Um, yeah. So when I read about the... the um, the city burning down and, and then 
going out into the wilderness or whatever, I, I was turned to the next page to read the next chapter. And I was like, oh, it's done. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I, I read it in high school too, but I, I kind of had forgotten the story. So yeah, um, yeah uh, and I, I, I had to turn the pages a couple times to make sure I hadn't missed something. I was like, I, I, okay, yeah, that's the end of the story then. Okay. <laughs> well, it, it's funny, David, because um, in one of those uh, three introductions that Bradbury does, he talks about, you know, people have asked him, does he, does he wish he had written a longer book or, you know, had been more involved in Yeah. And, and the one thing he mentioned was that he wished that he hadn't killed Clarice off so early. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. That, that, he feel, felt like, and I'm going to butcher his quote because I don't remember 100%, but he feels like it would have, you know, 30 years later kind of diluted the purity of what he wrote by going back and changing things at that point. Yeah. Um, but I guess there was a stage version of it that he helped co-write and he did include Clarice, like, I guess later on when the Freedom Fighter showed up. Oh. Oh, so she's not totally dead. Or, well, yeah. can't be half well, dead. Sorry. He says <laughs> version you reach. in one version she's dead and other version she's not. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Yeah, I think I like concept that she could be, you know, with the freedom fighters. Um, I think I would have liked for for Guy to spend more time with her and to get more in depth into her family life because Kristen, I think it's interesting what you said that we don't necessarily get the impression that she had books, but their family life is so different. Um, mm -hmm. Such you know, such potential for unique characters there. Uh, yeah. So, Oh, sorry, go ahead. I'm wondering if one of the problems with it, not, so it's such a short book and the characters do feel very symbolic. Do you think that that's a flaw in the story? Do you think that one of the, I guess I don't, might not be exactly what I'm trying to say, but because the characters are so symbolic and the story feels like symbolism for a warning for our society against television, other technologies, um, maybe because it's got that myth quality to it, that that's why the characters aren't as in-depth as we want, and he did that on purpose. Um, and that's one of the things that we're not, you're, you're sort of getting at that that's why it's I mean, like characterization. Could be. Yeah. 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 I mean, I feel like, uh, David, you've met, read more Bradbury than I think the rest of us. Doesn't he tend to write kind of short stuff anyway? Yeah. I don't, I'm not, he, he might've written another novel, novel or a longer story, but I'm not familiar with them. I, I've read well, his I Martian Chronicles, our short, our collection of short stories. Um, right. And I don't think there's another book in there. I've read about half of them. Is he the one who wrote the Jungle Book? No, that was um, Richard yeah. Kipling. Another R. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can Richard Kipling. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And his short stories are really good. There, he he has a um, poetic style to his prose that's um, a lot of fun to read. And I feel like, especially for Fahrenheit four five one. I mean, that's the only Bradbury book I've ever read. But he was. I feel like he was very economical in his words. Yeah. But like word had a had a purpose like there was there, there weren't any throwaway words and that you could tell yeah. he was being very with it. Yeah. so it come around to what you asked madison i feel like he probably did know what he was doing kind of making things more symbolic because of his intentionality with the rest of the book yeah, yeah. maybe yeah that makes sense i i think bradbury is very intentional in his writing which helps me to make greater leaps um I, I, I'm not sure with a different writer i would have hazarded to say that bd was the devil but with <laughs> Bradbury's so intentional the way he writes. It's, it's a safe guess. <laughs> uh, 
there's too much symbolism there for it to be yeah. something else. Yeah. So here, here's a, a question, and this is kind of like the, I feel like the cliche high school uh, question, but if you could change one thing about the book, what would you change? Hmm. <laughs> what have you got thoughts, Kristen? Well, I'm trying to, I'm tr- if, I mean, there are things that I pick out as not my favorite, but I'm trying to singling out one thing to change because like it's easy to like complain about something but if someone asks well what would you have done instead like that's a lot harder to yeah. answer True. so yeah. i don't I, th- I think for me it's we've kind of discussed it already um the method of continuing the knowledge that relates to the book it's kind yeah. of a silly petty thing to mm-hmm. yeah pull over but yeah. uh, i i wouldn't yeah. have done it that way Honestly, I thought that, and this is so bad, I shouldn't be saying this about such an amazing writer, but I thought that things were a little bit too convenient. Um, he he meets Faber on a park bench randomly, and then and then Faber gives him his number. Uh, for, for what purpose? Oh, just in case you need to come burn my house down? Sure, that makes sense. Um, and I, I felt those big moments where guy is making decisions were very convenient even well although so especially when it came to faber um how he finds faber how he reconnects with faber how faber decides to help him um that's that would be my biggest thing to change but like you said Kristen, how would you how would you go about changing that i've not a clue i'm not a writer Well, you said when we were talking earlier that you didn't really care for like the almost. Well, and it's hard for me to describe what it is that I, that I, that I didn't like. I, from the beginning and maybe, and maybe it's because it doesn't really happen much in the first half of the book. Um, His writing style um, is, I think is fantastic. Like his, his imagery is great. Um, I thought it was really clever. A lot of, a lot of times, I think more often than not, his imagery is very like, thematic it's a very mm-hmm. fire it's like a lot of fire yeah. related and just things like mm-hmm. you know or like actions yeah. that someone take like how someone sits down or something like you know innocuous things yeah um, but t- for me later in the book it i think it's when he it's when he kind of turns that corner and he starts you know his his path has changed slightly in mm-hmm. his thoughts and whatever it's like and I think, and I think it makes sense to me now why it is this way. When David, you mentioned that he tends to be very poetic in his writing, is a lot of the things either um, sometimes it's dialogue and sometimes it's inner thoughts of Montag. But mm-hmm. it's like the way he writes something to me. It's like I feel like I'm reading a poem that I don't understand. Where he like from, even from one sentence to another, I'm like, wait, how did we get from this thought to that thought? Well, how are they connected? Like, I'm losing connections, yeah. thoughts that he puts down on paper. So either whether he's talking to someone, or if he's just thinking of thoughts, it's like I'm I'm like reading. To me, I feel like I'm reading this jumble of thoughts that I'm like, how are these all? How do these all go together? Like, what's yeah. going on here? Like, I'm I'm I lost my connection to the story for that paragraph because I'm like, I have no idea what this has to do with anything. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I can see that. And I, I felt that way a couple of times when I was reading it and, and um, that's part of his style. It's, it's that way in his short stories too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's his, his writing is disjointed at times. Definitely. Yeah. It's yeah. There are things that felt a little disjointed. I'm like, even like there's this one part where he, he's like, it's after the whole, um, um, 
or maybe it's before the whole <clears throat> scene with him reading the poem to those ladies. I don't know. It's either before or after that, but he's talking to his wife about the books and she's getting all upset about like what he's reading them. And, and he kind of explodes at her and he's responding to like, why should I read? And his response, he starts, he starts rambling on about the night that she overdosed. Yeah. And like, like it, he, the things he says, I'm like, how is this a, like, if, if I, like, even if I, like, kind of lose it and I, you know, go off with someone who's been asking me, like, well, why should I do this? I'm like, I feel like that's not how I would respond. I don't know. I think. The way he responds to things. I'm yeah. like, how did you get there? Like, yeah. that, that doesn't, that doesn't address so Because that's definitely how I would fight about something like that. I would, you know, we're focused in on this moment. We're focused in on this. And I know that I'm about to quote the Canterbury Tales. But first. Let me tell you how pissed off I am that you tried to commit suicide the other night. <laughs> um, I, I, that's how I, like, it's like his mind is a big old jumble and he's just pulling things in based on the feeling. Yeah. Not necessarily the action associated that he, that yeah. he yeah. yeah. And I, and I, and I said that, you know, I said, I, I recognize that, you know, for an actual person, you know, our, the way our minds work mm -hmm. is that's very much how it is. You know, if you were to try to just translate how our mind processes thoughts from one thing to the next, that's kind of what it would read like. Well, However, in my, in my very humble opinion, as a reader, I don't want to really read a story that way. Like I'd rather have something a little bit more logically connected than and what my brain does. It's, it's, it's indicative of Bradbury's writing style because you guys are familiar with the concept of uh, plotting versus pantsing when writing, right? Not really. Uh, no. yeah. So, yeah. Plotting is like kind of what more what me and you do, David. We, we structure our writing out. In okay, pantsing. yeah. Writing by the, by the seat of your pants. Mm. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> all right. Pantsing. Okay. Yeah, all right. Writers do do both um, to an extent, um, but those are kind of like the two big camps for writing. And in the, again, back to the introduction, Bradbury was very much like plotting is dumb. Like I never do it. He just literally like sits down and just writes and writes and writes until he stops. Yeah. And he yeah. thinks that plotting kind of destroys the purity of what he's writing. Huh. Um, and I feel like that's kind of maybe a little bit of what you got, Kristen. It's yeah. Just him just kind of like scribbling down his thoughts and maybe not going back and editing it or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But. That's really interesting because I feel like it sort of plays into what you're talking about, Kristen, and what I was talking about earlier with the convenience of thing. When you when you take when you plot, um, you're sort of you you have to realize when something is too convenient for your characters. Yeah. Um, I think I think it also might be slightly intentional on his part, and maybe not an effective way to do it. But I think it, those disjointed. Um, thoughts and writing is often in a um, scene where a lot is happening and usually a lot of chaos is happening. So I think stylistically he may have chosen to do that to um, create a little sense of chaos within the reader too. Um, maybe too much because um, it, it kind of throws the reader off. Um, but that pacing, that, that the pacing of the words, the, the disjointedness um, kind of runs parallel with a lot of what's happening in the scenes, too. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I, yeah. And I think, oh, go ahead. Okay, regardless, Bradbury knows what he's doing. So. Oh, yeah. 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 And I think for me, like, I, I tend not to enjoy that quite as much because I, because I am very visual. So I'm one of those people, like, I, I'm. I automatically envision everything I'm reading. And if my brain can't make sense of what I'm reading, then like my visual like interpretation is like, whoa, what, like what in the world am I, 
like <laughs> yes yeah but yeah. it's going like i and i lose it and so yeah. that's when i'm like that's when i like my brain gets a little frustrated and i'm like my my internal movie has like <laughs> something's wrong with the projector it's off <laughs> That's yeah, it's like on. like you took the camera and shook it while you're trying to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. To me, it's like when a director overuses a shaky cam. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, that's too yeah. <laughs> too much. <laughs> Pull it back. Yeah. 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 That's funny. So it's it's already at about 45 minutes. So I, I do have one more question to ask. But anything else you guys want to add before we wrap up? Yeah. I don't think so. No. So. Um, using like a you know one out of ten stars, what would you guys rate this book? Uh, one out of ten. Yeah. Okay. Do do no, no, no. Ten is good. I like the ten point rating scale. I'm just trying to find my what I actually how I did rate it. Um, you go, Dave. I I think I think I'd probably um, for me give it an eight. Um, I love the theme. Um, I think. And I think some of the story elements, um, especially sim symbolism, is excellent. Uh, for the most part, I like Bradbury's style, a lot of writing. Um, I, I, reason in 8 and not a 10, um, the genre, dystopian fiction isn't my favorite genre. So maybe it's a, just personal bias. It's just, I, so I, that's probably why I wouldn't make it a perfect book. And um, and, and, and like Madison was saying, and, and we discussed earlier, um, the, the plot and, and some of the catalysts and, and movement of the story it isn't perfect, um, yeah. but definitely a very good book overall. That Eight out of ten for me. I gave it four out of five stars on Goodreads, so I think that would translate into eight out of ten. Um, I feel comfortable with that. And I think... Um, I really enjoyed the characters. I I loved the symbolism and the just the depth of feeling in the story. Um, but I think sometimes one of the notes I made is I didn't like all of Ray Bradbury's descriptions. I thought sometimes they were clunky, and I really had to. Um, uh, I'm just like, really? Why would you say it that way? That's so interesting. <laughs> and um, and so as I look back on it now, I can see why he would say why he would describe something the way that he did. But while I was reading it, it took me out of the story and it made me stop and have to think. And not that that's a bad thing, but some, there's a time and a place for it. And it didn't flow as well as I would have liked. And I also wasn't as pleased with the ending as I think that, that some people are. So that's why it's an 8 out of 10 for me. But the writing overall is so good. Um, and the, the story in general, I think it's such an important story. Uh, so that's, that's why it's eight out of ten. Cool. Can we, we go first? Yeah. yeah. I, I also gave it an, an eight out of ten, um, or four out of five on Goodreads. And I, I think I was talking to Kristen about this earlier. For me, for a book to be a, like a, a five or a ten, it has to be completely perfect. And I was debating between three and four in you know on the Goodreads scale. And for me, three is a book that I it really enjoyed, but I'm never going to read again. Um, like a lot, a lot of Agatha Christie novels are like that for me, like the Good Detective Murder Mystery is like really good, but there's too many other good books to read in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I get uh, a four or an eight, four to five or out of 10, I think for the same reason you guys um, did, you know, the ending just didn't, it wasn't entirely, I think, you know, pleasing in the sense that I feel like it had too many unresolved holes. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of what I mentioned earlier, just, I, I would have liked a little more complexity to the characters, mm -hmm. even though what the characters he did show, the bits of them they did show were really good. Yeah. 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 
Kristen? <laughs> I'm going to be the anomaly here. <laughs> um, I, I, gave, I gave it a six, six stars. Um, and I think it's just my, my personal reader mm. style is dip, it isn't as suited to this book. And it was funny with the first like 20 pages, maybe, or 15 pages. Like if I would have just read the first 15, 20 pages, mm. I would have been like, yeah, you know, 10, like this is great. But I think as it went on from what got me um, mostly was that kind of poetic and in some cases overly symbolic writing descriptive style i think madison something you said kind of made me realize i felt the same way when you talked about kind of the some descriptions felt a little clunky or something and to for me there were certain areas where either the descriptions or the language he used was either yeah it felt odd like an odd choice or like overly disguised so i yeah so my like my visual processing center in my brain could not figure out what he was talking about or it was you know it was just things that yeah helped it or kept this story from really flowing mm -hmm. for me and the fact that it's dystopian uh literature which yeah. is again not not that my favorite yeah, yeah. not my favorite combined with the fact that the ending is kind of like eh, maybe you know it's like so there's a i mean there's a bunch of things that kind of all added up to take away which i feel like this is a, a very dystopian stars. ending it's kind of a lot of other dystopian <laughs> it is yeah and yeah so yeah. it's i don't know yeah i wonder how steve, of, yeah stephen king from the stand <laughs> i can appreciate that it's um a book that other people really really like and that it's um a really important theme like i there are things there are, there are creative elements about it i can really appreciate it's one of those things it's like i mean i wouldn't put it this simply but it's almost like i would say i can tell it's really good i just don't like it yeah <laughs> i do kind of fair but but mm -hmm. it's not my favorite yeah if i were if i were given the choice to read this or something else Cool. Sounds good. Any other thoughts? I think we've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, this was Ray Bradbury's for Fahrenheit 4051, published, I believe, in 1953. Um, so that's all for this week's episode of the Seeking Stories podcast. And one thing I did forget to mention at the beginning is that Madison also has a YouTube channel called uh, Reading Wayfarer, correct? Uh, yes, that's its name. Correct. Reading Wayfarer. So if you haven't had a chance to check that out, make sure you do because she does some really cool weekly reviews on a wide variety of books, which is really cool. <laughs> so thanks, David and Madison, for, for joining us. And hopefully we can do that again sometime soon. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you, you so much. We enjoyed it. <laughs>